This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. The other thing too, and this kind of goes back to the commercial real estate credit problems, is that I think one trend we'll see this year, maybe a little next year, as rates stay high is bank shrinking. And I think it's so interesting to think about how banks grow. Banks grow through their asset size. They get bigger, then they make more money on all these loans because they're making more loans. But you get into things like loan to deposit ratio issues, and then you have to fund that growth. Hello, and welcome back to Bank Nerd Corner, my favorite podcast that I do on a monthly basis. I am joined, as always, by the managing editor of Bank Director and a just tremendous bank nerd queen of the bank nerds, as I christened her not too long ago in my newsletter, Kia Hazlitt. Kia, thanks for being back once again. Alex, I'm always happy to visit with some of my subjects and hear how they're doing on a monthly basis. How are you? Well, I'm good. I'm good. I think I speak for all of the peasants living in bank nerd kingdom that we're doing well. It's been a little bit of rough times recently. It sort of seems as though the gods are angry with us. So we do have some questions for you, and we're hoping you can sort of interpret some of the signs for us. But we're okay. We're doing okay. Well, yeah. So when we get to the human sacrifice portion of this podcast to end the high interest rate environment, credit crunch situation we're in. Yeah, we'll get to that point today. We will. Yeah, we have a a very good offering, actually, for the sacrifice portion at the very end. We'll save that as a tease. As always, this is going to be Kia and I breaking down some of the interesting headlines or um, sort of news items in Bank Nerdland, obviously, there's plenty to talk about. So we've picked out a couple things that we think are interesting. We'll then talk a little bit about sort of a wait but why question that maybe has sort of cropped up for us. And as Kia just hinted at, we will end with a possibly unanswerable question leading to the metaphorical sacrifice of a very specific talking point that's been annoying Kia and I a little bit in the discourse. But before we get all to that, let's break down some news. I think, Kia, you have the first topic for us. Yeah. So, you know, continuing a narrative around the what high interest rates do to banks and do to borrowers. So we've had interest rate risk, we've had liquidity risk, and then those two things often beget credit risk. And in a narrative in, in financial journalism has been that credit quality has never been better. And then every quarter it seems to get better, but you're just going closer and closer to zero. And so you kind of know that it's going to change at some point. It has to change. It has to rise. You can't go below zero. And, you know, there's been some speculation before the pandemic that we were going to have a slowdown, credit quality was going to begin to decline. And then now I think that there is a better argument that credit quality, specifically commercial real estate Mm. credit quality, is going to turn. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting to be talking about this because actually... About three years ago, I wrote a piece in for Q2 or Q3 Bank Director Magazine mm-hmm. about commercial real estate risk because we had entered into an economic shutdown, widespread forbearance across the industry. It wasn't clear if we were ever going to leave our homes. Like, right. I don't know if you remember what it was like three years ago. Maybe we'll never go back. All the cities will turn to dust. Yeah, yeah. And we're empty. there has been, yeah, exactly. And there's been a big changes in the economy. And one thing that's so interesting to come back to is actually, there was kind of a fundamental shift in how some metros and some industries and some professions worked. And that has caused 
longer running problems for some commercial real estate buildings, Mm -hmm. for some commercial real estate borrowers. But the pre-pandemic or the pandemic stimulus helped cover some of that. The forbearance covered some of it. And then interest rates being really low. So this is, again, an interest rate story. Yeah. Hid some of the stress that borrowers could face. Mm. And so the reason why we're talking about it now in 2023 is because this year, $270 billion of commercial mortgages that are held at banks will expire or mature. Mm. And a lot like it's not like a mortgage where you just kind of like pay it off and then you own the house like oh, there's a lot of refinancing there's maybe some like selling of these buildings these are like kind of loans that turn over and so if your loan that you've had for the last five years of the last 10 years is, expires in 2023 that new loan is going to have a 300 basis point increase potential for the interest rate right at the same time certain buildings just have lost value mm-hmm. They're not producing as much rent. There's been maybe a shift in workforce or utilization of that building. And so you could see or you are starting to see in some among some large landlords, you know, these like big companies, strategic defaults on certain buildings that they'll just let, you know, I don't know, I guess it's like kind of more business for them Mm. to default on a loan. But you're starting to see some of this. And then the question is, how long does it take for this to become a real trend at banks? And our banks who are focused on liquidity and getting like managing interest rate risk and defending their NIMS, mm-hmm. are they ready to start doing big credit workouts on some pretty big credit? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, perfect topic. And I think it's really interesting. The way you framed it, I think, is exactly right, which is we've been dealing with these sort of bank problems the last few months from the lens of this is an interest rate problem. This is not a credit quality problem. Yeah, and and thank God. Right, and that's great, right? And so, like, and I was reminding people of that a lot, right? Like, this is not 2008. It's not the same situation, so on and so forth. However, as you point out, interest rate and credit risk are correlated, right? As interest rates go up, pricing for loans change and affordability of those loans for borrowers also changes. And these aren't 30-year fixed loans, right? And so just to, like, put a fine point on that, like commercial real estate, and this is something for the peasants in bank nerd land that maybe you're not super familiar with this, but it's very concentrated within a sub-segment of banks in the market, right? And so as a portion of their overall balance sheet, the very, very large banks don't do a ton of commercial real estate. They do a large amount kind of in total volume, but it's not yeah, like the biggest aggregate. part yeah, of their balance sheet. However, for smaller banks, commercial lending and commercial real estate being a big part of that, that's a much bigger part of their portfolio, right? And they specialize in, oh, hey, you know, this business or this real estate developer, whatever, in the community that I serve, they're building something, they need a loan, we're doing commercial real estate. So there's a lot of this commercial real estate lending that's very a very big part of balance sheets at smaller banks sort of spread out across the entire country. And to your point, I think the two sort of colliding trends that are making this really interesting are, as you say, interest rates have gone up, obviously. And these are all loans that typically have like a five to 10 year term, right? Typically. Yeah. And so like that five to 10 year term that was originally originated when rates were basically zero. And so as you say, 300 basis point increase, like that's a huge, huge jump just to sort of price in the difference in interest rate, setting nothing about... The, nothing about the value of the building itself, nothing about its cash flow. This is just like 
just a different interest rate environment. Right. And then that trend smashes directly into the other trend that we're worried about. That I same way I've been sort of thinking about this ever since the early days of the pandemic. Banks have always sort of graded out commercial real estate loans based on the quality of the buildings that they're underwriting, right? And so sort of like you do with a house, right? What's the value of this house? And if I had to foreclose and sell the house, like what percentage of my loan am I going to get back because of that? Commercial real estate works roughly the same way. And so they have all these different grades for the quality of the commercial real estate. And I remember even just like six months ago, you know, bank analysts were asking a little bit about, hey, what's your commercial real estate looking like? Has it still holding up okay? Because they see the same trend, right? People are not going back to the office the same way they were before. The nature of work has shifted. And, you know, clearly the value of these like buildings has shifted a little bit as well. And most of the bank CEOs that answered those questions were like, oh, we're fine because we only do commercial real estate at sort of the highest grade, right? We only do lending against really, really high quality office buildings. So basically what they were saying was, we do like downtown San Francisco quality office buildings. We don't do the outlying areas and not so good neighborhoods. Like we only do the really, really great stuff. And that in a traditional world would be comforting, right? That would be something that you'd be like, oh, okay, then we're fine. But to your point, like the world has shifted. And just because you have like this great office building in downtown San Francisco does not mean that you're going to get tenants that want to rent that out at insanely high prices. And I feel like one of the things around commercial real estate that I'm just fascinated by is it kind of parallels the reaction that a lot of company CEOs are having to like work from home, right? And so we've seen a bunch of examples of CEOs maybe reacting somewhat emotionally, but basically just saying like, get your asses back to the office. Like we're not doing remote work anymore. Everyone come back to the office. And the employees are like freaking out about it and going like, I need to look for a new job. I can't do this. And I don't know. I was thinking it almost reminds me, not that I was there when this happened, but like it seems like it's similar to, you know, a hundred years ago when we went from a six-day work week to a five-day work week. Like I'm sure CEOs flipped out then and were like, you know, this is the end of the economy. This is never going to be the same. Like, I can't believe this is happening. We take it for granted now. But like when these shifts in work happen that are sort of these monumental changes that you're never going to go back from, it takes a really long time, I think, sometimes for the people who've been in those markets to adapt to that new reality. And I I think it's kind of similar to commercial real estate, where if you're a real estate developer and you own some of these great commercial properties, you remember five years ago, right? You remember 10 years ago when like this was the building and like these were the rents you were getting and tenants would like stab each other to like get into these offices that you could like rent to them. Like it was a great business to be in. And I think a lot of those real estate developers and even some of the bankers that work with them are sort of not adapting their mental model to like what's happening today, right? And even if interest rates go down, these buildings just might not be worth what they used to be worth. Yeah, I think we this comes up a lot about complicity in banking mm-hmm. is just assuming the economy is always kind of going to look the way it does right. or certain trends are always going to continue in the direction that they're in. Commercial real estate is so interesting because it's so important to community banks. And at the same time, they like live and die by commercial real estate. Commercial real estate is the source of a lot of crises. And yet, like, you know, banks just can't quit it. And so I do think like it'll be interesting to see if there is a big credit reset in the commercial real estate space, if banks are willing to kind of change their understanding of these buildings and their function and their value and their purpose Mm -hmm. 
And I've been seeing some really fantastic disclosures from banks as they're reporting earnings. This is a great time for any bank that really wants to show that they are doing the work to make sure that they're not the next bank to run into, to be caught off guard by any of the risks that plague banking, to say like, this is our breakdown of real estate. This is our geographic breakdown. These are, we do a lot of medical buildings, which tend to be, um, have higher occupancy than a regular office building. Mm -hmm. There are banks that are saying that we've, this is what we've stressed our loan book at for this. We've stressed our borrowers, the loan to value, the cash flow, the debt service coverage ratio. And so I don't think like there's never going to be any office buildings. The other thing too is commercial real estate is a very big category and different. You know, right now I think you and I are talking about office yeah, yeah, commercial yeah. real estate buildings and there are other types of commercial real estate buildings, which you know, warehouse buildings are very hot right now. Totally. Maybe that's, maybe banks get really into warehousing and then we have a warehouse credit <laughs> crisis in five years. Yeah, you heard it um, here first. But it is interesting because I don't think any bank wants to say like, oh, we think commercial real estate has no future in this economy. But you kind of don't also want to say like, actually three years ago, four years ago, we did some big bets on commercial real estate and we had no idea the nature of work was going to change so much. And now we are really reevaluating that bet because we took the wrong side. Right. But I will say like the other thing too about commercial real estate is I did bring up that a lot of it causes a lot of crisis in banks because they are so exposed to it. Like, yeah, they are. You know, most community banks, CRE makes up 25% of their assets. It's just huge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But from my perspective on my throne, mm -hmm. I do want to say that like this credit turn will kind of test whether regulation changes in underwriting higher capital standards that were put into place after the financial crisis, which also had a real estate component yeah. work. And, you know, I think it's kind of OK to have credit crises. I think, you know, interest rate risk, you know, that's not something banks can really dictate. That's kind of just something they have to ride and manage. So you can't say like loans are never going to go bad and a loan that was good three years ago might not be a loan, a good loan now. But, you know, I do I am really interested to see if banks can manage this part of the credit cycle a little bit better than they managed the last part. You know, I'm really interested in Cecil. You should expect allowances to be rising right now if you think credit risk is rising, if you think interest rate risk is going to make loans less affordable. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I'm going to be looking for is not necessarily NPAs and NPLs not increasing. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that that tells us anything about banks. I, what I want to see is the coverage ratio of the allowance increasing. I want to see kind of banks thinking about how we're going to work out these credits are, you know, if we can see a borrower in 12 months or 18 months having big refi risk, what are we going to do now to talk to that borrower, get more collateral, get them to maybe refi, get them out of the bank, like sell the loan. I've been talking, I talked to a guy who works with lenders to sell loans. And he's just like a lot of banks, they might have enough capital, but they don't have enough people on their workout teams or they don't have enough like management or like software or like technology to help manage. A lot of the work that has to go into re-risk rating mm -hmm. some of these credits. And so they can maybe just sell the loan and you might want to sell the loan before it like turns um, before right. you have to take the big mark on it. And but that's just preparing ahead, you know, and so I want to talk about this now because we're not seeing it now, right. but in like two or three quarters, we might see it. And, you know, banks just have a lot of crises right now to manage. And this is the next one. For me, it's not good enough anymore to say like, well, our credit is good 
now because that's backward looking, you know? I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, I think this, that's why I wanted to talk about it today because I, I totally agree. I think it's going to be one of the next huge roadblocks that a lot of banks have to either jump over or smash into. And I, I do think we'll see a little bit of both. You know, to your point on the regulation side, I mean, I do think it'll be fascinating to see as, I mean, we know this is going to happen, right? We know credit conditions are going to tighten. And obviously, consumers have been doing better than expected. Jerome Powell is still frustrated that employment is relatively, unemployment is relatively low. It's the conditions have held up well, but nothing lasts forever. And I think commercial real estate is going to be the first one of those dominoes to tip over. And, you know, again, that's not a bad thing to your point, right? Like we're in the business of maturity transformation. Your job is to take credit risk. Like that's fine. But, how you manage it and how the regulations that have happened since the great financial crisis change just like the way in which these banks manage it and like how bad the problem actually becomes. I'll be fascinated by it. I'll also be really interested to see the different thresholds for where those regulations apply and which banks end up in a better position because of that or not, right? Like I've always had this sort of pet theory that the best small banks, the best performing ones are the ones that sort of do a lot of the regulatory work that they're not required to do, but they kind of do it anyway. Like the kid that does the extra credit in school, even though they don't need extra credit because they ace all the tests. Like, I do think there's an element of being sort of overprepared going into this environment that will help. And I think the other thing, just to point out real fast, and we'll jump to the next story, is there is a art to commercial lending that's very different than consumer, right? So with consumer, it's really all about like automation, efficiency, technology. That's why big banks tend to dominate in consumer, especially lately. Commercial's different though, right? Commercial is about relationships. It's much more about humans working together. There's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of sort of manual steps that go into originating the loan, valuing the property, managing workouts or other sort of conditions with the borrower as it goes, right? I mean, it's much more of a manual relationship-driven business. And I think to your point, banks over the last, what, 15 years really staffed up on the sales and origination side of that artful process. Yeah, the process. lender side. Yeah, but they, they maybe not so much on the like, workouts, credit quality, collections, all of those sort of things. And so I do think you'll see a shift in just resourcing so that banks, the smart ones, are prepared for, even though we feel relatively good about our book, we know we're going to have some challenges. To your point, like I think there is a lot more nuance with commercial lending where just because something's trending in a bad direction doesn't mean it has to end up blowing up on your balance sheet, right? Like, there are things you can do to manage that risk on the way down. And I think we're seeing smart lenders already doing that and adding a lot of nuance to that discussion, to your point. And I think you you just want to see banks do it. Right. Like, you right. don't want, again, this as, you know, we're, as we enter this next phase of the credit cycle, banks probably need to be changing and updating their narratives too, mm -hmm. ending like, you know, what's true for our bank right now? <laughs> and yeah, so that's, again, I just think it's really interesting. This is kind of our big, first big commercial real estate crisis, post-financial crisis. Let's see if we all did it, like... We'll see. Yeah, we'll be you able don't to. Do, we might get more regulation. So do a really good job. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Well, and you might get regulation even if everyone does a surprisingly good job. But do the best you can. Do the best you can. Yeah. Are you ready for the next story? Yeah, let's move to it. OK, so the other one I wanted to talk about is one that's been in the news recently because of earnings, which is First Republic Bank. And that name will sound familiar, again, to the peasants out here in bank nerdland with me, um, because... You may have heard of this bank, but you don't bank there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, it's unlikely that any of us actually bank there, but we've all heard about them in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank, because First Republic Bank served a similar set of clients, a little less sort of tech-heavy, as they made very clear in the immediate aftermath of SVB. 
but uh, similar in terms of the sort of very focused, very affluent client base, they have suffered from a significant amount of deposit runoff is kind of the the headline. So the thing I saw here was $100 billion in deposits going out the door, which that's a lot. Yeah, that's the size of some banks, like that, a lot of banks, bigger right, than most banks. Right, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a like massive amount. And sort of dealing with that challenge, and obviously FRB is still alive, still kicking, still open for business, but they continue to be challenged by deposit runoffs. They also are challenged by a loan book that, similar to what we've been talking about, due largely to the raising the rising rate environment, is just underwater right now. And so the thing I find most interesting about FRB, and you know, Kia would love your sort of take on this because you've studied this pretty closely, they seem to just kind of be trying to limp along, right? And the earnings call and the release that they did was strangely sort of trying to obfuscate a lot of these facts and like making us do math to try to calculate exactly how many deposits were out the door. They were being a little coy and sort of sharing the damage. And it it seems like their sort of overall mentality right now is we just need to ride this out. We just need to wait. And I find that to be pretty interesting and a little bit troubling, honestly, because it's sort of the thing that you have before a bank gets into real trouble and the FDIC has to step in, right? Like these banks that aren't in the throes of an immediate and severe liquidity crisis, but they are really just kind of shuffling along and they're not particularly profitable. Their earnings are getting hammered. Their stock price is getting hammered, but they continue to just sort of limp along. And I wonder if FRB being sort of the clearest and most prominent example of this right now is a bit of the canary in the coal mine just in terms of will we see other banks entering this sort of shuffling along mode where they're not doing particularly well, but they're also not you know catastrophically collapsing the way we saw with Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah. So I want to just make a note that, you know, I think there was just a paper that came out that said like social media chatter actually does contribute to bank runs. And so I want to be really careful about you're just having some kind of contextless chatter that would not be useful to a bank because totally I would agree. certainly not want to be contributing to a bank run. Yep. I mean, FRB is fine. Let's just be clear. <laughs> right. like, it's not suffering a liquidity crisis. Exactly. And also pulling your deposits out will just make the situation worse, not better. But the earnings are so interesting because there is a lot of like reading in between the lines. The earnings call was only 12 minutes pre-recorded or, you know, pr- uh, prepared statements, not pre-recorded. And yeah, no questions. No questions. Yeah. This is obviously a bank right now that like, they're kind of in survival mode. They don't, there's not a lot of positive things at this moment. I think, you know, the most positive is that they were able to close earnings mm-hmm. and report. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I started my career covering a lot of troubled banks and you actually learn a lot about banking when you cover, to, cover a troubled bank because you kind of see the mechanics working. And so what you're picking up on this, like, their retrenching, their slowness, we called that zombie banking in post-financial crisis. Um, those back then were banks that were hampered by credit losses and were having slow capital decreases, like their capital was slowly eroding, but they had enough liquidity to continue operating and some of their loans made money. So, and that's just such a unique thing about banking is that there's so much like margin that you can kind of see the profitability decline, but it doesn't mean that they're going out of business. It doesn't mean they fail. They fail for other different reasons. And at a certain point, the regulator just says, "Okay, game over. You're you've lost." And so with First Republic, 
what you're seeing is all of their assets are underwater, basically. Their borrowing has become very expensive and they have their liquidity has fallen. So their you know, loan to deposit ratio is changing. And so the question is right now, can First Republic extend like buy time to turn earnings around? And then, or can they just not make a lot of money mm-hmm. and just and write it out? Their margin fell 70 basis points quarter over quarter. Uh, Their NIMS 177. And you can just look at that number and they don't have a long way to go. Can you put that number in perspective for all of us down here, not in the castle of Bank Nerdum? (laughs) So the margin that they make, the interest they make on their loans versus the interest they pay on their deposit. interest margin or NIMS. That is the... And like the weightedness of everything, the mix is that they are making 177 basis points and they had been making 240, which is still like pretty low. Like, And to your point, they just made loans that don't have a high interest rate. And so when you make loans that don't have a high interest rate, when you have a lot of bonds that aren't paying a high interest rate, but you now are paying a lot of interest on your funding, that's how you get this number. Right. Well, and, and just to be clear on the loans, like as an example of the type of loans they were doing, and it, it, it is reminiscent of Silicon Valley Bank, it was a lot of like, hey, refinance or get a mortgage with us if you're really wealthy that can be just at sort of an unbelievably low interest rate because they were trying to yeah. attract relationships to the bank. It was It's a relationship-driven business. That's where we're seeing a lot of these sort of freakishly low interest rate loans that are sort of suffering the most from the high rate environment that we're now in. Yeah, absolutely. And so they just aren't making a lot of money. Right. That's kind of what Nim tells us, um, how much money they're making between the two. And so that's fine. There's no, like, regulators don't shut you down because you're making 177 basis points on your Nim. Right. Regulators um, don't really care that much about your share right. price, right? Like, just because <laughs> your, your analysts are mad at you doesn't mean that your regulator is going to be, necessarily. Right. And so I just think that, you know, First Republic symbolizes a new type of bank that has made so many bets on interest rate risk that they are just like the only way this bet unwinds is if rates fall. And that's the only way that the loans can stop being underwater. That's the only way they can get more affordable funding. And so everything they'll do right now is going to be incremental. So like every time a loan pays off, maybe they buy a new security at a higher rate. Maybe They've talked a little bit about restructuring the balance sheet and potentially selling loans that can help move some of these lower yielding assets out of the bank and grow the NIM because you're just changing the math of some of the loans that are making up that NIM. And they also may be whatever high rate borrowing. I'd rather you stay in business than cost, you know, the FDIC money from insurance. For sure. Maybe there will be some way for them to pick up some lower cost deposits. Mm -hmm. But that those strategies take a lot of time. The fastest funding is the most expensive. And so in a couple of quarters, you know, maybe we'll see some of their funding costs decrease or maybe they can get into some cheaper funding. They just I don't know what the uninsured deposits that the 30, 30 or 40 billion that the big banks put in, if those are, you know, if those have a high rate or anything. But yeah, if these banks with, you know, with getting their NIMS crushed, this high price deposit, their deposits might still increase and their loans and securities like those are fixed. They're just not making any more money. I do feel like we will see more of these banks enter kind of a zombie state. And then the other thing, too, is that because a lot of this is just like the difference between fair value accounting and 
the amortized value right. of the assets. This makes it hard for them to find a buyer because of the realization of the fair value marks. So just and just so, to be clear on that, again, for, yeah. for all us people yeah. who are not well-versed. Sorry, we're just, I thought this was a nerd's podcast. It is, it is. I'm just doing a little translating, mostly for my own benefit. I'm sure our, our listeners are following you perfectly. Um, but for my own benefit, what you're saying is, so in the case of like FRB as a specific example, one good resolution in the short term that would just sort of take everyone's stress away would be, hey, someone should acquire them. And to your point, there are good assets there. I mean, like that's a wealthy client yeah, they're base. Performing. It's yeah. performing. Like it's not unreasonable to think, hey, someone might want to buy them. But something you and I talked about a long time ago is that sort of in the acquire or be acquired sort of world, when a bank is acquired, all of the assets that aren't being marked to market, suddenly you have to realize those assets, yes. right? The buyer has, under like acquisition accounting, mm-hmm. the buyer has to mark all the assets and deposits at fair value. Everything has to be marked. And then between the amount you pay, right. like the purchase price and the actual value, that's goodwill. And that gets added to the bank. And on some of those marks, you get to accrete them back, which is really nice because that's just like purchase um, accretion accounting. So functionally um, speaking, like... Super nerdy thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, so it's... But, but you do have to realize the marks. Right. And a buyer, like a buyer wants to do that, but a seller does not want to take that lower value of their bank. They don't actually want the real price of their bank sometimes, right, you know? Right, right, right. So you can look at... So the other bank that could be acquiring them can look at the actual assets and go, oh yeah, no, those are great. They're performing. We're very happy. We're not going to buy you though right now because like just the hit to our books would just not be something feasible yeah. for us, right? And, and it kind and of, I, it speaks yeah. to like the difference between bank acquisitions and like tech acquisitions. And I think this is something we talked about before, but it's like, yeah. like tech acquisitions, it's all about future value. And oh, our shareholders love it when we buy something that could turn into something magical down the road. Bank shareholders aren't like that, right? Like when you acquire another bank, you are acquiring assets today that have value today that will be adding to the earnings today and next quarter. Like there's not this sort of future looking value that you could put on things that may turn into value later. And so even though the assets might be good, if they mark to market as a loss right to now today, that's basically prohibits or inhibits the ability to acquire that bank. Yeah. And you could see a distressed sale, not maybe not a first republic, but we did see some of those post financial crisis banks that maybe in a couple of quarters would probably have capital declined so much that they would be closed by regulators. So they tried to get, and so you would see these deals that were done under book, which is, or less than 100%. And those actually are really great deals for the buyers. And so there is some, you know, one one reason why I feel like we're we're not seeing a lot of M&A and maybe why FRC maybe should be seen as an M&A seller, but maybe won't, is the issue around timing of a buyer and kind of waiting, you know, you want to buy it when it's on sale and like maybe it'll go on at clearance. And that's where that that kind of complicates this timeline. But is it more likely or less like they'll sell? I, I don't think it's really likely right now. Yeah, no, that makes um, sense. The other thing is they're big and, you know, who can buy a bank this big, a bank that's bigger? Well, and it kind of goes back to what we were saying about like those commercial real estate developers too, right? Like you have to have rationality from the seller too, right? And I think a lot of times I don't know the First Republic executive team or anything, so I can't really speak to their mindset. But it's not uncommon, I think, particularly in banks to go, we're worth way more than that. What are you talking about, right? I mean, there's that, if you've ever watched some of the movies made about the financial crisis, that's always how they sort of portrayed Lehman Brothers back in the day before they sort of went under was 
they were just totally unwilling to accept the new reality. And I do think we will see some of that over the next year or so where like the reality is you should be trying to sell yourself even if you do have to take something below book. But a lot of people just aren't willing to acknowledge that reality. So we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. The other thing too, and this kind of goes back to the commercial real estate credit problems, is that I think one trend we'll see this year, maybe a little next year, as rates stay high, is bank shrinking. Mm. And I think it's so interesting to think about how banks grow. Banks grow through their asset size. They get bigger, then they make more money on all these loans because mm-hmm. they're making more loans. But you get into things like loan to deposit ratio issues, and then you have to fund that growth. And so I think if you have a securities book that you can't sell or you don't want to sell, if you have deposit, you don't want to bring in more expensive funding, what you can do is sell some of your loans. You can use those as like an asset right. to, and then get money from them through a sale and then either use that as cash on hand, use it to fund growth. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of get rid of some of that interest rate risk that banks are getting crushed mm-hmm. by right now. And it also helps like lower the risk of the bank. And I think that, you know, I read at the start of the year, even before the whole mm-hmm. um, Silicon Valley bank failure, that in this high rate environment where you banks might want to really focus on the ways they want to grow, who they want to grow with. And if you're not getting paid to use your balance sheet, if you're finding spending time in relationships that aren't core to your bank's customers, where your bank plays best at, if you're not getting compensated for your risk, like you should not play in that space, right? This is, and I think, you know, like we've seen like Goldman's trying to sell Green Sky, yeah. even though yeah. like Green Sky is apparently like it's not fine. an Achilles heel for yeah, them. Yeah, it's, it's fine. fine. But I, I think there is something to be said about a bank just saying like, I don't think this is core. And when we bought this, we were in a different funding and rate environment and it, it doesn't actually work that well later. So we should sell it before it becomes distressed or something like an albatross for us. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, to, to put a bow on that and then we'll move on to the next topic, I think you're exactly right. The sticking to what you're good at and what's core is the challenge. And it's cyclical in the sense that like when rates are really low, there's very little incentive to not try stuff, right? And so you sort of just like put a bunch of bets down and you just try a bunch of stuff. But as we've seen, as rates go up, and they went up really, really fast, really suddenly. So like that as a caveat, like when rates go up, it becomes really pretty abundantly clear. This has no sort of additional value to your franchise. Like it's not, it's fine. You didn't buy like a lemon, right? You didn't drive off the lot and like, oh, and then like the car breaks down. Like it's fine, but it's not additive to what you do and what you're really good at. And when rates are high, you really have to have like a core franchise that makes sense and is resilient. And so I do think we're seeing a lot of the assets that were picked up over the last, what, five to 10 years that really weren't additive to that core franchise kind of just getting pruned off. And that could be parts of your loan book. It could be businesses that you acquired. It could be sort of new deposit franchises that are not behaving the way that you anticipated, whatever it is. And the thing that's interesting is all of those are going to settle out somewhere else, right? Like it might not be core to you, but you can sell it, maybe not as a distress asset to someone else where maybe it is core, right? And so like, I do think there's going to be this shuffling around of assets, large scale in the financial industry where everyone's like, yeah, we don't need green sky because that's not really what we do, but maybe someone else does. And maybe the fact that we can give it to them eh, at a little bit of a discount where we got it is good for them, relatively good for us. And everyone can go home, maybe not happy, but at least satisfied. 
Totally. Um, all right. So now let's do wait, but why? And um, I'll take this one. I have a wait, but why for you, Kia, which is why are bank regulators not always on the same page? And I'm going to elaborate on this. Yeah. Tell me more about this. Okay. So um, obviously, all of the different regulatory agencies, and I'll stay at a federal level because the difference between state and federal is its own whole ball of wax that we won't get into. But just at like a federal level in the US, I'm always fascinated when regulatory agencies seem to have like almost good natured sort of disagreements or opposing points of view on trends or topics that are clearly important to the market at large, right? And the one that I've been thinking about, and I'd love to get your take on because I know you've been looking into this as well, is open banking. So obviously, the CFPB is full steam ahead with open banking. They are finalizing rulemaking around Dodd-Frank 1033. By the end of 2024, we're going to have supposedly some finalized rules in place. It won't be the end-all be-all of everything that we might want for open banking, but it'll be a good starting place. It will require that banks share their customers' banking transactional data with the customer's permission and do that in a relatively sort of safe, secure, reliable way. The motivating desire behind the CFPB's push around open banking is competition, right? So they want to make like banking more portable. They want to make it much more competitive. They basically want to stop this bad thing that they see in the market, which is consumers being trapped with their bank and not being able to switch away from their bank, even if they're suffering from bad service or high pricing or some sort of abusive practices. Like, they don't want people to be hostage to their bank. So they view open banking as a lever to basically drive more competition, make it easier for people to switch. And it's all about like customer switching and deposit switching and portability of bank accounts. That is really interesting because it sort of flies directly in the face to a degree to bank safety and soundness, right? Which is from the OCC's perspective or the FDIC's perspective, people who think about like, the stability of deposits and deposit betas and like what happens if everyone just decides to move their money to a different place, which obviously we saw very dramatically with Silicon Valley Bank, and now we're seeing in a slightly less dramatic way with a lot of other banks. You're telling us you want to make that easier for consumers to do? And so maybe you can sort of shed some light on this. The acting comptroller of the OCC, Michael Shu, gave a speech where he talked a little bit about this, right? Yeah. So I think something that to keep in mind is that risk and opportunity are often two sides of the same coin. Yeah. And so as the nature of banking has evolved, I think it's actually really appropriate for regulators to think about the risks that the evolution can pose to banks. And I had I personally had no idea that the thing keeping all banks safe and sound in this country was a difficulty of closing your accounts and transferring the money. <laughs> But which is the joke. But I do think that and I have written about the speed that money moves has changed the liquidity profile of banks. And it is appropriate that regulators say this is something we should know more about. We should update our assumptions historically under the liquidity coverage ratio. Retail deposits have a 5% runoff rate, assumed runoff rate. And so banks subject to the LCR have to keep high quality liquid assets that could meet that runoff under a stress outflow for 30 days. Mm. And that's good. You want that. It does mean that banks have to hold more HQLA and it kind of reduces profitability. But open banking and Silicon Valley, those are kind of unrelated 
things that happened in the economy, but they have something in common, which is that money moved really, really fast. And regulators want banks to be prepared for that. And I do think that one one issue about open banking is I feel like it's talked a lot about on the fintech side and not that much on the straight bank side, in part because we haven't had a lot of rulemaking. And it's just like right now, it's kind of just an added cost to implement to a lot of banks. And the formal rulemaking and the banks should mention in comments that this would could potentially change their liquidity profile. And, you know, I'm sure no bank wants to hear this, but they may actually have to change some regulatory assumptions to incorporate a heightened ability to move your money. Mm-hmm. It is interesting that the CFPB actually does want this. This is the, the ideal outcome of open banking for the CFPB is that consumers move their money. <laughs> One, and it's like, to, yeah, no, totally. So to put an exclamation point on that, the CFPB's perspective would be deposit beta should be 100% right? Like that would be one way of saying it, right? Because it's like, from the CFPB's perspective, they look at it and they're like, you're ripping off your customers if you're not passing fully all of these rate increases onto them, right? And so like, that's the CFPB's vision. And they say, if your bank's not doing this, you should be able to push a button and move your money over to another account where they are paying that rate. And you should be, your money should be getting as much of that increase in the federal funds rate as possible in real time as the rate goes up. However, what we know, looking at all these banks, is like from the FDIC and OCC's perspective, they'd be like, "No, no, no, no!" Like that would be very, very bad, very bad, right? And and of course, like the truth is somewhere in the middle, in the sense that I sometimes think like is cell phones are a good example of this, right? We we passed a law or regulation that requires cell phone carriers to make your number portable so that you can switch from one carrier to another. Great. Most people still don't switch, right? And so like, just because you make things more portable does not guarantee that people are going to switch. And I sometimes think that even the CFPB has a bit of a unnuanced view of the value that people get from their banks, right? So like, just because I'm not getting a high interest rate paid to me by my bank doesn't mean there might not be other reasons I like that bank or I'm perfectly satisfied. And there's something a little vaguely paternalistic, which comes up a lot with regulators, of going like, no, no, you should be unhappy. Your bank is ripping you off. It's like, well, for me, they're not. Like, they're fine. So I do think there is an element of this probably not being quite as stark of like a choice that is going to be made by consumers as you might think with open banking around the corner. But I do think it's useful to talk about the extreme versions of the example because it really does paint a picture of like, from a safety and stability perspective, low deposit betas are a feature not a bug. From a CFPB market competition perspective, low deposit betas are a bug, not a feature. And so like, as open banking sort of pulls those two things into conflict with each other, I think we're going to see more of these types of conversations happening. One thing I'd be interested to talk to Director Chopra over is, does he think open banking is going to be good for community banks or bad for community banks? Because he is ostensibly pro-community banks. He's talked a lot about that. Big yeah. banks. Yeah, he's talked a lot. He, he sees himself on the side of the little it's, guy. It's Capra-esque the way he talks about relationship banking. But I do wonder how open banking will tilt money, mm-hmm. the movement of money pro and against or for and against community banks and big banks. I see open banking as being a competitive threat to community banks. 
and that they would be at a disadvantage for both technology and they might be on the losing end of money movement or deposit migration. And that when he talks about competition, I think that that's well and good to think about that. But what that competition would actually look like in the direction of it, I would like some more intellectual like consistency here. And yeah, and the other thing too is I actually do think regulators should care a lot more about how fast money is moving. Oh, yeah. We're getting like open banking is coming with Silicon Valley and Fed now. Yes. We these are things we have talked about. We have talked about the nature of funding. Yeah. Like the, the infrastructure is getting a massive upgrade, <laughs> right? Right. And money is just getting a lot more fungible. And we should probably have a better understanding of different types of consumers or businesses and how they use these, what these accounts mean to them, like what someone would move for. Is it a payroll account? Mm-hmm. That's why it's uninsured. Mm-hmm. And then also like what kind of value do people get from banks? Because I, I do think that that your focus on the deposit beta, I think is is correct. But we should probably also think about other value that people get from banks and why someone would want to stay at a bank that's not paying them their full rate or the full beta and why someone would actually want to leave to a bank that that's not right i think that's exactly right i mean i think that that is precisely the conversation that's going to need to happen is what is the value that a bank provides if they're not passing on the full rate increase to their customers right and and you know you think about like chase that pays a pathetically low interest rate to its customers many of whom are very happy chase customers who are sitting there you know, that's that's the sort of question we need to untangle. Like, why Chase? What is it about what they're doing, whether it's their copious branch network, their really good digital banking, the sort of customer service they provide when you call up, the breadth of capabilities that they provide to you so you have a one-stop shop for everything you want? Like, what combination they're in for just your average consumer is providing a value that's worth the lack of interest rate that they're getting on their deposits? And I think we want to try to find as an industry a good answer to that question, right? Like, I don't want to sort of live in a world where kind of this maybe puts me more on the sort of OCC, FDIC side of the the table. But I don't want to live in a world where the only answer to what a bank is doing well is passing on the full, uh, you know, available interest rate to their customers. Like, if that's the only value banks provide, A, that means banking is probably not doing the full scope of what it can do. And B, it severely limits banks' ability to do maturity transformation and to provide these sort of more valuable services for the overall economy. So I think maybe we can end this by saying, Kia, that we would be delighted to have uh, Director Chopra and uh, Acting Comptroller Shu join us on a future Bank Nerd podcast to hash this out. Yeah, I have some questions. So, So this is your open invitation to the podcast if you guys are listening. With that, Kia, should we end real quick with just a little bit of a um, unanswerable question? And uh, this is the one where we want to sort of bring that talking point that we want to sacrifice on the altar of bank nerdum here. So speaking of high rate deposit accounts or savings accounts and competition in the market, Alex, my question for you is how much of the second quarter's deposit beta do you think we can solely attribute to Apple's new savings account? (laughs) 100% of the deposit beta for banks? 150%? Is that too high? Like, I don't know. So, okay. So, Key and I are joking about this, but it's... Are banks doomed? Yeah, yeah, banks are doomed. Apple's coming. Like, I can you believe that Chase only pays out whatever basis points they're paying out on deposits when Apple is offering more than 4% on a savings account? This is Mm -hmm. crazy. Have you heard of a high-rate account? I think they... I think Apple's like the first. I think they invented it, actually. Yeah, I think they invented it. So, okay. 
Key and I are joking, but our sarcasm comes from a place of deep pain and agony, which is that uh, a lot of the coverage of the Apple high-yield savings account has been hyperbolic, glowing, deifying. I'm not sure what the right term is, but I'll just pick on the Financial Times as one example. They ran an article talking about several banks in the U.S. that have seen deposit outflows, saying uh, depositors pull nearly $60 billion from three U.S. banks as Apple raises pressure. That was the title of the article. And like A to C. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, like go straight. Because this happened, this other thing must have happened. Okay, Apple just launched their savings product very, very recently. So clearly, just from a timing perspective, Apple could have nothing to do with the deposit runoff that has happened so far. The deposit runoff, as we've been talking about, has largely been uninsured deposits, which again, have nothing to do with Apple because there is a cap on the Apple savings account of 250000 They won't take uninsured deposits. And I think more broadly, Kia, the thing I would like you to answer for me, rant about, however you feel, is like, what do you think the actual prospects of Apple, once even this product has been in market for a while and is actively competing with all of the banks, what do you think it's like chances are of really pulling in a huge amount of deposits? Low. Okay. I don't know what I, you know, you and I have debated about the rationale of launching a savings account. I actually really love a savings account paired with a credit card. We've talked about this before. I'm nothing if not consistent. I love a savings account plus credit card. I think it's smart that, you know, if you have this Apple credit card, you can put your 50 bucks of cash back mm-hmm. in your high yield account. You're not uninsured. So you have a 250 thousand dollar balance or below yeah anyone who's getting more rewards on their apple cash card than would be over the fdic limit like they have a whole separate life that i'm not even really willing to contemplate exactly yeah you get into a different credit card <laughs> right right what, yeah, what like I would you call them. amex immediately and ask for a black card. like there are some banks for rich people right now they might want your business right, i don't right, I don't right, know. right. what are you doing with <laughs> apple would be my question but anyway but the breathlessness of we're just talking about a savings account that pays like a high, <laughs> like a competitively high, but not the highest not the amount highest. that you're only going to get X amount of interest on. You're only depositing X amount of dollars a month. It's kind of weird and specific to your phone, yeah. which is like just kind of a weird way to like manage some of your finances. But the breathlessness, I think, that, you know, it's obviously overrated, yeah. right? Like this is a fine product. It's interesting. It's experimental. It's a curiosity. Don't let Kia and I's like complaints about it indicate that we don't like it. Like I like it fine. I think it's smart. I, I'm no, with you. No, you opened an account. Like I didn't even. Open I opened an account. an account. Yeah, I mean, I, I have. Yeah, an you Apple put your hundred dollars of Apple cash <sighs> in your account. Yeah, now it's earning. It's earning big yield. Like I think it's smart. Yeah. right? I think it's a 4% good percent of a hundred dollars. I know. I'm very excited. Um, I mean, it's a nice product. I do have some complaints about the usability. It's kind of buried within the Apple Wallet. It's a little tricky to find. I'll be really curious to see, like, to what extent Apple really steps on the gas and tries to like grow it. Will they expand it beyond just Apple credit card customers who it's currently available for? Key and I had a robust debate about that via text message <laughs> that we won't get into. But like the general principle, I think, with Apple is no one thing that Apple does outside of hardware is ever going to be like a massive bet for the company, right? Like all of this is subordinate to selling iPhones, selling iPads, selling Apple Watches, selling new MacBooks. Like all of this is subordinate to the hardware business. All of these things are incremental value adds to the ecosystem that keeps all of us happy Apple customers locked into it. I could see it, you know, growing. I could see it pulling in deposits, but putting it in like a Goldman Sachs context, 
I don't see this um, being anywhere close to what Marcus was able to grow their deposits to, right? No, we were talking with Jason McCula. He said that Marcus probably has about $132 billion. And so I don't know if I think Apple Savings is going to bring in $1 billion by the end of this year, especially if it's uninsured or sorry, insured money. But, you know, I think like if you're a fintech and you're looking at this, like all the press this savings account got, like go launch a savings account, pair with a credit card. I think more, I think more fintech should do this, but I can't like fathom the connecting this two things. Like depositors pulled 60 billion from US banks and then put them in money markets and then bought treasury bonds. Right, right, right. It is not even appropriate to put these in the same breath. And it's, you know what, like more power to Goldman for having this like getting just a pickup in some of their, you know, savings or deposits. Like it'll be nice to have, right? Like, I mean, it's it's nice to have for Goldman. I honestly think a big part of the Goldman thing is also just they sort of maybe see the writing on the wall a little bit with Apple doing the buy now, pay later piece separate yeah. from Goldman. And they're like, oh, no, you know, right. like they want to hug Apple as close as possible and sort of hug their porcupine as much as they can. Like, I think that's much more about relationship management. The deposits are nice. Like everyone wants deposits right now. Like, that's great. But I don't view this as being like, I would imagine Goldman's not thinking of it as, oh, my gosh, all of our potential balance sheet concerns are completely solved by this huge new behemoth bringing us tons of deposits that are incredibly sticky. Like, that's not what this is. And that's fine, right? That's fine. Like, yeah. I, I, he and I would be bad headline writers for the Financial Times or for CNBC or for some of these other publications that have been publishing this breathless coverage because, to me, the Apple savings account is fine. Yeah, I do think it's interesting. In addition to teaching people how to use money on their phone and to see their phone as the... The wallet. Um, Yeah, like the conduit of their finances. I do think there is this interesting phenomenon with financial media of telling people they can get more interest for their deposits. You know, not everyone is friends with a bank reporter who can make personalized recommendations for your financial situation. You you get a lot of those questions, don't you? I I do do too. Okay, I I just want to make sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so a lot of people maybe don't know. Maybe they're at Chase and they're fine with their their deposit relationship, but they don't know that they could get four percent, and so. These headlines actually do maybe tell people how to get a little bit more money for their deposits. I was reading the Wall Street Journal about all of their bank earnings coverage. And then on the sideline, it said how to like it was explaining how to set up a CD ladder. Oh. And so like <laughs> in on the same Web page, you know, the Wall Street Journal is talking about pressure at banks, funding pressure, and then telling their readers <laughs> how to set up a CD ladder and how it works and like how much more money you could make from your CD. And it was like. You know, that's like that's actually what's happening is is that the financial media is telling people to move your deposits and it's not going to make a big dent. But well, because, again, like the the financial media, that's, again, kind of going back to the CFPB versus the OCC. Like, you know, I'm sure Rohit Chopra is like, yes, keep telling people, like, let them know there's more stuff yes, out there. More competition is good. Yeah, this is great. Competition. So so no, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's a positive development that people are more aware of the rates that they can get for their deposits. The other thing I think is kind of an interesting question is, do you think we're going to see just like more of a fracturing of people's deposits where it's like, yeah, I've got my cash back from my credit card earning 4% over here. I've got my you know money that I segment off of my payroll at the payroll account level going into this account and it's earning X. I also have a fintech app that's scooping out a little bit of money every month and putting it into a savings pot over here. Like, 
to me, that's another interesting sort of competition deposit movement savings question from the consumer perspective is I think you mathematically get the best return when as much of your money in one place can compound at the highest rate possible. And I think consumers generally don't have that uninsured deposit risk where you do want to sort of spread it out across multiple pots. So if you're under 250000 but the convenience is, oh, we added a savings account. You should get this rate and put a little bit of your money here. It does sort of have this interesting counter effect, which is it's a little less convenient to manage because I've got all these different pots of money in different places. And I'm, I'm the poster child for that because I've got a million different fintech accounts that are open and my wife is about to kill me. But I also think that it, from a savings perspective specifically, does sort of reduce the impact of that yield a little bit. So I don't know. I'll be curious to see how that part resolves itself as well. Yeah. I mean, these are not new products. Like savings accounts are pretty old. I do think like you make a good point that the competition in the rate space for these types of accounts could lead retail consumers to fracture their bank accounts. Like maybe I keep, and this is how I manage my life. Like, I guess I'll just say yeah. it. Um, I have a Chase transaction mm-hmm. account and then I've got two accounts, you know, I've got a, a checking and a savings account at SoFi. Yeah. And so now I have two accounts. And and I think in the past when I couldn't do all my banking on my phone, that would have been like a lot of work. It's just too inconvenient, um, to, right? Yeah. But now I it's just me toggling between mm-hmm. apps. And so I think like in the same way that to tie back to our conversation about commercial real estate and maybe some of the assumptions about what the future looks like and how people will conduct business, banks need to think about that separating their accounts to have just a transaction checking account for their credit cards and then their like bill pay account is not difficult anymore. It is not like that hard for me. I The apps live in the same folder in my mm-hmm. phone. And so again, open banking, all of this makes it just a little bit easier to move your money. And so, you know, maybe, you know, sometimes I care about the rate I get. Sometimes I care about something else like geographic branches or ATM locations. And to just build in those updated assumptions that some customers will not think that the moat around moving an account, managing two different accounts at two different banks is actually that difficult. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's kind of where we could end to say that Apple's coming for all your money and that it's the hottest new thing. Yes. And I actually do want to see more savings accounts and credit cards. I think move away from debit cards. I'm so over interchange. I think savings and credit cards is where it's at. Amen to that. No, I agree with everything you said. And I think banks updating their assumptions about what future behavior is going to look like is the headline for this whole conversation. So Kia, queen of the bank nerds, thank you for descending down to talk to us. It was a delight as always. We'll be back at this again soon. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining me. This was so much fun. Yeah, thanks so much, Alex. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest fintech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love fintech takes, please tell a friend.